Welcome to the Rosie on the House Arizona Hour. Driven by Sanderson Ford. Your weekend wake-up tradition. It's Rosie on the House. On this beautiful Arizona Saturday morning, welcome to Rosie on the House. Your happy place to get away from it all. If you've been worried and stressed about the potential the measles outbreak coming to Arizona, don't worry. We've lived through it before. In 1910, Maricopa Reservation was quarantined because of an outbreak of whooping cough and the measles, and we made it through it. They always talk about the potential this, the potential that. One in a thousand of those ever even happen. If you can put up with 110 <laughs> during the summer, I, I think we're good. <laughs> Today is International Museum Day, and Pueblo Grande Museum is offering two-to-one tickets. Just go to rosieonthehouse.com, and in the Events tab, you can get all the details there. Or if you're in southern Arizona and looking for a way to relax, it's the Winecox Wine Country Festival going on all weekend long. Ten wines provided by Cochise County. We were actually at... Schnepp Farms last weekend mm-hmm. and got a bottle of Cochise County wine for Amanda for Mother's Day. And what did you get, a red or a white? It was a red. We, okay. we, she likes Cabernet. When she lets me have a little sip, I'll enjoy <laughs> it, especially when we have a steak. And she's from California, and she has friends that have vineyards in San Luis Obispo. Mm-hmm. And she said, this one's just about as good as anything you could get out of San I, Luis. I've had, I've had quite a few wines from uh, Page Springs, Javelina Leap. I'll put them up against California. They'll surprise people. Well, this one's going on in southern Arizona at the Wilcox, also listed in the community calendar at rosieonthehouse.com. Or if you're into horse racing, today we've got the Preakness. You can watch it at the Arizona Downs in Prescott Valley. Okay. Uh, you can watch it at Turf Paradise, even though racing is closed. They've got buffets on both race days for the Preakness and the Belmont. Or you can go to where the home, the home of Quarter horse racing is right here in Arizona, Rito Park in Tucson. And to talk about the Preakness Day, we're bringing Wendy Davis, the director of the Racetrack Industry Program at the U of A, to talk about racing as an industry. We had you on a couple weeks ago, Wendy, and we're going to have you on again uh, ahead of the Belmont. But I've just got to know, did you watch the Derby, or is that is that a dumb question? Well, I actually had to watch the Derby after it was run live because we were at a wonderful old ranch up outside of Young, Arizona, and we had no cell service and had no TV. So we had to go find service, go down the mountain a little bit to find service so I could watch the replay. So at the time, I had no idea that that the controversy over the the decision and the disqualification was happening. So I had to catch up pretty quickly after the Derby was actually run. Well, that young is a beautiful part of Arizona. It is my favorite corner of Arizona. And what I love about it is it's so unknown and so unpopulated. I try not, I try and preserve that. (laughs) Well, you can't get there from here and you can't get any cell service. Too bad. It's beautiful, (laughs) beautiful part of the state. So you got to see the the race after it happened and the decision. I don't know. Looking at it, the fastest horse won and was disqualified. But I don't know enough about the rules. I, I like what Bob Baffert had to say. You know, take your beating like a man. Don't get out there whining, throwing flags. But. Like a true Arizonan. <laughs> <laughs> Wendy, what, 
this race will be part of your school going forward as it relates to rules and calls i'm sure well absolutely we're going to we're going to use this as a as a uh, case study probably for years to come. The reality is that these kinds of calls and this is this kind of evaluation is done by the stewards every day for every race all around the country. And it really goes unnoticed as long as it's not such a high profile race and gets so much scrutiny, especially from folks who might be new to watching racing and maybe don't understand the the process. So first, I off, will so, say, yeah, before you say anything else, mm-hmm. I I missed that as it happened in real time, but I knew something was up when they interviewed the winning jockey at the time, and all he was talking about was my young horse, and the crowd spooked him, and I thought he's trying to cover his tracks for something. <laughs> he's yeah, he he knew something. Something happened. It it wasn't a, the race that he hoped he had run, and the 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 rules of racing aren't necessarily uh, made by one track or another. They're actually state administrative rules. So the stewards are are following rules that are promulgated at the state level, and so they are obligated to follow the same rules whether it's a race on Wednesday or it's the Kentucky Derby. And the, the rule, and I, I actually pulled it up here because it's, it's pretty clear that says the leading horse, if clear, is entitled to any part of the, the track. If the leading horse or any horse in the race swerves or is ridden to either side as to interfere, intimidate, or impede any other horse or jockey, uh, the action shall be deemed a foul. And it says, if in the opinion of the stewards, the foul alters the finish of the race, which doesn't mean just the winner, but any any place that any of the other horses may finish, whether it be it changed the, a horse's opportunity, maybe they were going to finish or it looked like they might finish second, and the interference caused them to finish fourth or fifth, that really must be taken to account by the by the rules of racing, and that's what the stewards have to uphold. And in their opinion, the action of the horse did affect the outcome of the race, although it wasn't the second-place horse necessarily. It was a number of horses. And again, by the rule, the stewards will then place the offending horse behind the horse that finishes the farthest back that they believe was interfered with. So that's how uh, Maximum Security got placed 17th because a horse they believe he interfered with finished 16th. And that's the same process used day in and day out. Although uh, on this day there was a lot of scrutiny, but it is the same process that's used no matter if it's the Derby or any other any other race any other day. I have a question. Do sure. you think maybe one of the stewards was an NFL ref during the <laughs> postseason by chance? <laughs> well, you know, I I think that the calling pass interference is very similar to calling interference in in races, and <laughs> the uh, the NFL is not without its own controversy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
You know, the interesting thing, the story that died when all of this happened was the number one seated horse wasn't even in it. They had pulled Omaha Beach just three days before. And last time we had John Wendy, you, you said something. It's like the race of a lifetime. How, how did that go? The chance of a lifetime and a lifetime of chance. And it's the one, there's one day that three-year-old can race in that race. So remember, it's just for a three-year-old horse and it just happened that he had a, a, a very slight medical issue. And so that opportunity to compete in the Derby was gone. The horse is doing great. We're going to see him again later in the year. So it was, you know, it was just one of those small glitches that the timing just couldn't have been worse. A lot of people would not have pulled their horse for something that small. And you hear a lot of times people criticizing the industry. Well, or, be, or call animal cruelty or whatever, but they, they don't understand just how well these animals live and how much better they live than a lot of their owners and caretakers do. And this is a perfect example of putting the horse's welfare ahead of that chance of a lifetime, e even as the number one seated horse. His health was more important than the chance at that one-day derby. Absolutely. That's that's one race, and there's a lot of races ahead in that horse's future, and I think we'll see him as a star again later on in the year. Now, the lineup for the Preakness today, what are uh, – is uh, yeah, I haven't even – I've been so busy this week, I haven't even looked. Is that um, country – who ended up winning country something? Country Heroes after – Country House. Country House. Is he even entered in the Preakness? He's not. He had. Um, he came out of the race. You can only do one sixty-five to one win a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he came out of the race with a little bit of cold, and so they've decided to, you know, to to wait with him, make sure he's a hundred percent. So there's actually only four horses that were in the Derby that are back in the in the Preakness, uh, War of Will. Improbable, Bodie Express, and Win, Win, Win. Uh, there's 13 total horses that will be racing on Saturday. And which one of those was Baffert? Wasn't Improbable Baffert? It is. Improbable is Baffert. He's the morning line favorite at this point. Um, and so he looks like he's he is uh, one of the the strongest in the field at this point. Now, will you get to watch the Belmont today, or are you going back up to the ranch? No, we'll, I'll, I'll have the opportunity to see this one live. Wonderful. Well, enjoy the race, and we look forward to having you back on here. Was it June, June 8th for the Belmont? That will be wonderful. All right, this is Wendy Davis, director of the Racetrack Industry Program at U of A. And just a quick, uh, quick highlight of the Racetrack Industry Program, it's for anybody interested in horse racing, whether it's uh, – shoeing the horses or jockeying the horses and everything in between absolutely and uh, we'd love to have more folks from arizona we have people from all over the world so nice to have some arizonans with us too and it's nice to have the home of the racetrack industry program right here on our own backyard they were looking for a neutral ground that wasn't uh something that could just be like well that's for thoroughbred in kentucky so they picked arizona and uh was actually the home retail park in tucson home of the quarter horse racing industry. I just got to know one more thing. Do you know who Danny Cordoza is? Yes, actually, I do. I know Danny. That is my wife's uncle. 
Oh, really? What a oh, small world. Oh, my goodness. It's a small world. <laughs> We're going to have him on. At, in his time, he was the most winningest quarter horse jockey in America. And after the Belmont, we'll have both Wendy and Danny on it. Now that we know you all know each other, we may just have you on at the same time. Fantastic. That would be so much fun. Right. Thank you, Wendy. Great. Thanks so much. Flagstaff, Arizona. Don't forget Winona. It's your kids on Route 66. Time for our true or false trivia giveaway. Uh, the winner of this will get two parks passes to any one of 35 Arizona state parks. Good for the entire rest of the year. This major artery through Tucson was born out of the need for speed. In 1899, horseless carriage arrived to Tucson. In 1903, a speed limit of 7 miles an hour was established eventually went up to 10 miles an hour in 1913. Now, at the time, people would go out there and race, and it ultimately became nicknamed the Speedway, giving birth to what we know today as Speedway Boulevard. Is that how it got its name? If it's true, text TRUE to 411923 if you think that's false. Text FALSE will pick a random right winner at the end of this segment. Now, if you are traveling this weekend, no, uh, and, and you're not staying at a state park, there are six campsites closed by the U.S. Forest Service outside of the Pace and Rim along Verde Glen, Dude Creek, Flowing Springs, Washington Park, Bear Flat, and Weber Creek. Now, you can still go and visit for the day, but they've been restricted for overnight camping until at least 2024 while they're trying to uh, rebound from overuse and let the vegetation regrow to prevent erosion. Fines for camping in these areas? Five thousand to ten thousand and possible six months in prison there's plenty of places to camp don't risk it now gary's been on this route 66 kick we had roman rich in a couple months ago and you uh, found us another guest as it relates to route 66 this is an interesting uh, angle we never thought about this is the women of route 66 and we found katrina parks who's a filmmaker uh she's still working on the film but she has a fascinating story about when you think of Route 66, you think mostly males, guys. But she has a fascinating story about the women who had to go through a lot just to get recognized. And she's joining us in studio today, Katrina Parks. Welcome. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us about this project you're working on. Um, so it's called Route 66 Women, the Untold Story of the Mother Road. Um, and it kind of emerged out of my first women's history documentary project about the Harvey girls, who were one of the first all-female American labor forces. And what I found um, interviewing them was that as the railroads went into decline, these amazing women forged careers for themselves on Route 66. So the Harvey girls, about what time frame is this? Uh, the Harvey girls were from about... Um, the mid-1880s all the way through um, some would, uh, 1960s. Uh, so there was some overlap with Route 66's time period starting in 1926. But um, really prominence of the Harvey girls, um, these women coming from the East and Midwest to work in these small railroad towns, that kind of um, died out after World War II. And so a lot of the big railroad hotels were closing, stations were closing. And so they went on and forged um, amazing careers on Route 66. And I was kind of looking at whether beyond the waitresses and sort of mom and pop businesses that you would expect to find on Route 66, were there other ways that um, 
women contributed to the mother road. Interesting. So you started on this project about the Harvey girls, get interest, interested in this women of Route 66, and your, your profession is a... I'm a documentarian, is okay. what I would call myself, and a producer. Uh, I've done a lot of uh, nonfiction television over the years, uh, but women's history is really my passion. Now, something like this takes a lot of time and research, and you know, a documentary, I don't know how long it takes to produce. I understand you're still working on it. Uh, funding for something like this, do you... Uh, you know, GoFundMe. Uh, do you have supporters? It's a, it's a lot 66? of work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're right. Um, but I've been really lucky. Uh, the state humanities councils, including Arizona Humanities, have been really supportive of my work. And um, I've, you know, what I found with the humanities council grants is I can go and do public programs and kind of show and workshop some of the stories as they're in process. Um, in other words, like I filmed the interviews and I've edited them, but it's not the final thing for broadcast. But it's a great way to kind of do more research while I'm in these towns that are on Route 66 presenting my work. I always find new stories and um, meet interesting people. And then the other, the National Park Service Route 66 Corridor Preservation Program, um, they gave me the first grant so I could do this work, do the research, and and make a website. Now, how long do you anticipate this documentary to be? It is going has grown into <laughs> a three-part series. As of um, now, it could be four or five. No, <laughs> no, 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 don't stop it at three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to, I have to draw the line somewhere. Um, but uh, it's organized chronologically, so you you know start with women in the first episode, starting in the mid twenties, and go all the way up to World War II. And that's like a, you know, World War II changes everything. So that's a great place to go into a new episode. Um, and that one, that episode goes all the way up to the end of the 40s. And then in the 50s, you have the decommissioning. Um, well, the Interstate Highway Act, and that really affects Route 66 and businesses. And so that will be the third episode. The answer to today's trivia question is true. Speedway was originally nicknamed for a local place people could go race their horse-drawn carriages at turn of the 18th, 19th century, and is today called known as Speedway Boulevard, one of the main east and west routes in Tucson. If you texted true, watch your phone. You'll get a text back with a notification that you were the random winner, and then send us the address you want these sent to. We, we tell a lot of people, where do you want it sent? And they give us an email. No, these are physical tickets. They're the size of business cards. we got to drop them in the mail. Now all the folks around South Louisiana said Amos was a hell of a man Gary, you know who Mike Tiger is? Of course. You know who Mighty Mike is? No. An 800-pound alligator that calls Arizona his home. He was driven from Florida to the Sea Odyssey Aquarium this week, and Friday was his first day he was exhibited to the public. I had to go down and check it out for myself. The biggest alligator... Uh, the family has trapped off the farm with 720 pounds. So this one was a good 800 and another f uh, uh, good 80 pounds larger and about a, another foot and a half longer. They they guesstimate his age to be 55. Like I've always heard a lot of different things about him, but never sure if it was just uh, folklore, if they were true. Like uh, they always say you can tell the size of an alligator if you get a good look at his 
head from his eyes to his nose in inches that's how many feet in length his body is so you see a little tiny one or two inch you can handle that gator <laughs> five or six inch and eh. you get up to 10 inch 12 inch on a gator you leave that sucker alone boy <laughs> well my uncle taught me about uh, alligators and stuff he said they always like looking at the tail because that's where the meat is and it really is good oh if you go to bass pro shop i can't remember the name of the seafood restaurant there but when i'm in that area i'll go in and get alligator on a stick oh, it yeah. is it is good meat eaten so anyway, he's only here for a limited time. They say at least a year, but that's at Sea Odyssey, and the exhibit is open now. It is just part of the aquarium, no extra fee to see it. Uh, for music lovers, this is one of my wife and I's favorite, Keb Mo. He's performing in Tucson at the Fox Theater this Tuesday night, 7.30, 29 to $69 tickets at 7.30 Fox Theater. Gosh, if Tucson wasn't a four-hour drive for us, I would probably make that one. Well, if you ever plan the motor west take my way that's the highway that is the best get your kicks out on Route 66 back to our conversation with Katrina Parks the documentarian of women of Route 66 Hi. <laughs> <laughs> let's jump forward I want to talk about the phase three of 1956 to today um because that's the most relevant to uh, what's going on, and, and probably I uh, would assume the preservation of old towns along the way. Yeah, that's true. I mean, um, most recently, for example, you had um, a group doing a restoration project out at the Painted Desert Inn um, near Holbrook, Arizona. And um, that came to my attention just because uh, one of the women's stories that I'm featuring in episode two is about this really cool woman named Joy Nevin, who had a uh, traveling cattleman supply business in the 50s. So she lived in her van and uh, would go to ranches throughout Arizona on Route 66 and sell um, what ranchers needed to them. How many different stories are in these total on the document um well i've gathered about 75 stories altogether 75 80 um, and you can explore them on the website route66women.com and it allows you to sort by geography or the way a woman's life interacted with route 66 so you can sort by artists or archaeologists um, waitresses um and, uh, yeah, they, there's video on the website and photos. I think in the film, you know, I'll probably narrow it down to about uh, 30 to 40 stories. When will the film be ready? 2020. Okay. Fingers Getting crossed. Getting close. <laughs> and is that all three of them, or is this the third one now? The goal is to have all three ready okay. by then. Yeah, I have a fine cut of episode one, a rough cut of episode two, and episode three is in pieces. And and where will this be available? Is it something we could stream on that website you just gave, Route66Women.com? Yeah. Um, I mean, you can access right now. You can access stories and see the trailer. Um, uh, in terms of the ultimate platform for distribution, you know, my first film um, was distributed through by American Public Television to public television stations. So um, that's one possibility that's out there, of course, public television. But... Uh, I'm still figuring all of that out. And the death and rebirth, which is number three, this is rebounding from the interstates coming and taking over. 
along that stretch of uh, of 66, did you ever find Mater when you were doing your interviews? <clears throat> Good evening. Oh. My name is Mater, and I'll be your waiter. <laughs> Mater the waiter. That's funny right there. I did go to um, Galena, Kansas, and there's an amazing woman there. Um, well, there was a place called, I think, Four Women on the Route in uh, Galena, Kansas, and it was uh, four women who had got this the funds together to save this gas station and turn it into a cafe. I believe now it's called Cars on the Route. Um, I think her name is Melba. And uh, when we were there and stopped in, I mean, she speak, she's famous for speaking very quickly, like an auctioneer. And she was flagging down big groups of, uh, I think they were tourists from Amsterdam. So that's what's really cool is to see, like, this international interest in Route 66. There's so many German, Dutch, Chinese, Japanese tourists who come just because they want to see the real America. And they think that if they go on Route 66, they can get away from the chain stores and really interact with people. Did this documentary take you on all or or the remaining elements of Route 66? Have you traveled the whole route? I would love to do it continuously, which I haven't done yet. Um, But I've been to a lot of Route 66 in Oklahoma, Missouri, New Mexico, Kansas, obviously very quick, uh, Arizona, and California. So I, I still need to go to Illinois and Texas. In the Arizona stretch, what was some of your favorite? Have you had you ever been to the state prior to that? Oh, oh yes, because Arizona was very important for the Harvey girls, and um, one of the main sort of places that I went in Arizona was Winslow, uh, and Winslow has a lot of great Route sixty six stories too, uh, and Seligman, um, another sort of favorite spot for me in Arizona. Because one of uh, my Harvey girls, Luz Delgadillo Moore, um, she grew up there, and um, she's Angel's sister, and she was part of a family band that traveled on Route 66. So I'll be showing her story uh, up in Flagstaff this weekend. And we'll talk about that event here in a minute, but Winslow and Seligman are about not as far opposite sides of Arizona as you can get, but very east, very west. Um, In between there, you go through a little bit of Flagstaff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get a little bit of, uh, not uh, Salome, what's out past Seligman? Uh, there's a little bit of Williams is the one I'm... I'm oh, and Ash Fork. Ash Fork. Yeah. Um, and Holbrook so, is Holbrook. Past, past Winslow on the way to Gallup. So it's basically uh, on and off route f- Interstate 40 now. Yes, yeah. Going across the, the north part of the state. Now, La Posada has a big history when it comes to the Harvey girls, right? It does, yes. Yeah, one of my favorite spots in Winslow and an amazing historic renovation project. Um, and that's where um, I filmed maybe my second or third group of interviews with Harvey girls. Um, and, you know, they had, uh, I think, five or six Harvey girls that came to La Posada for my first interviews. Um, and it's been great to see, you know, over the years, the hotel there transform. It's it's always getting better and more amazing and spectacular. Uh, and it's fun to see what it's done for Winslow. 
And this event going on, I was reading the details on it. You've got uh, a screening of the documentary along with a question and answer. And a couple of the, and you're not going to be alone. You're going to have a couple people that are uh, Marshall Trimble, our state historian. A lot of our true or false history facts come from a variety of his different publications, and he's been on with us before. We also have Heidi Ostelier. She wrote the story of Arizona's deadliest shootout, and we had her on, I don't know, about three or four months ago. She's going to be joining you today, I understand. Heidi has been an absolute amazing collaborator. I mean, she's wonderful and this amazing resource for women's history in Arizona. Sadly, she's under the weather, so. Oh, <laughs> you're on your own. I'm on my own, yes. Um, and Marshall, you may not know this, but he grew up in Ashford, and his mom has a great Route 66 story. So I was able to interview him about his mom, and uh, he's going to come and be part of the Sedona panel. Okay, so it's Reardon Mansion tonight. That's right. Now, is it uh, projected on the outside screen? Uh where at the mansion is it going to be displayed? Good question. Um, I think it right now is set for inside, but if we have enough hmm. people, it may be moved outside. Um, and we are expecting a really good turnout, so it's exciting. And then the following— Have you been to the Reardon Mansion before? I have. I One of my um, historians, John Westerland, who— uh, another amazing resource he wrote about uh, the Navajo Ordnance Depot. He is going to be part of the panel, and uh, he, I interviewed him uh, at the Reardon at the mansion. Mer- mansion. Yeah. It was built before they had TV rooms and movie theaters. I don't remember from the time I've been there a, a room big enough for a screening like that, but I do remember the what we would think of as a porch swing that's I, inside by the fireplace. Yeah, <laughs> I think we're probably doing it on the the outdoor area uh, well that'll be a lot of fun and then sunday at two o'clock you're having another screening at the sedona public library yes yeah and that marshall will be part of that panel um along with uh, sean evans who's the archivist at the klein library and an amazing route 66 uh resource he's done lots of oral histories of his own so saturday seven o'clock today reardon mansion sunday two o'clock at the Sedona Public Library. And I'm sure all of those are at that website again, Route66Women.com. Yes, and we have a Facebook page as well for the Route 66 Women documentary. Well, we'll look forward to getting uh, our own screening. We'll have to do a Rosie on the House preview when that comes out uh, in 2020, hopefully. I'm sure if we follow the Facebook page, we'll get updates on when it'll be available. Yes, that sounds perfect. I would love that. Now, do you have any more shooting to do, or we're we all just down to the editing part now? Um, I do need to go to Illinois and do some filming, um, and then I'd also like to go to Texas. So both of those there are, are going cool to be incorporated stories. into uh, the yeah. final documentary. Yes. Yeah. Now, Route 66, it's 14 states, if I remember right? Or uh, eight states. Eight states. The shortest span is Kansas, and that's 14 miles. Is you that got it. Stat? Yes. Right. Well, thanks for uh, taking time out of your day and uh, doing a little detour down here to talk to us about this event. We do have an affiliate in Sedona. We've got a radio affiliate in Flagstaff. Anybody listening, it's right in your backyard. And if you're interested and want to learn more about the women of Route 66, get a preview of the documentary. From the filmmaker Katrina Parks tonight at Reared Mansion and Sunday at 2 o'clock at Sedona Public Library.
This year marks the 16th anniversary since the Aspen wildfire located on Mount Limit. It ended up being the sixth largest fire in the state history. Destroyed over 335 structures and uh, along the town of Summerhaven, almost 85,000 acres and wind speeds of 60 miles an hour did not help. It's going to be another crazy fire season or risky fire season with uh, temperatures getting to 100. So be careful as you're out and about this Arizona weekend. But one place it didn't burn down, Hacienda del Sol no. Guest Ranch Resort. And we've got the marketing director, Sarah Badia, on the line joining us, a Tucson native. And you were there when the fire was going on. I actually had a family member who could see the glow of the flames from their dorm in U of A that whole month that fire was burning. Yeah, I actually do remember that fire. Um, I could see it from my parents' backyard, um, and it just kind of lit up the sky at night. Let's let's go to a happy place. What what could be a happier place than Hacienda del Sol? Um, it is definitely a happy, peaceful place. I can tell you that for sure. What are the accommodations? Because this, this is more than just a place to go stay a night. We are a full-service resort. Um, the cool thing about Hacienda del Sol is there's so much to do right here on property. I mean, of course, we've got our beautiful guest rooms you can stay in. We've got live music. We have um, an outdoor patio and bar with happy hours seven nights a week. Um, we've got our fine dining restaurant, spa, horseback riding. I mean, there's something to do for everybody here. And you're joining quite a prestigious list of a, of guests. I mean, you, John Wayne used to stay there. Yeah, exactly. Um, actually, our largest room, the Casita Grande, um, it was sort of rumored that Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn kind of escaped to Hacienda del Sol, and that was the room where they liked to stay because it was so private. They could get away from it all, and... Um, Obviously, their relationship was kind of a secret. So we've got a lot of um, interesting history like that. Like you mentioned, um, John Wayne would stay here when he was shooting Western movies out here. So we've got we've got all kinds of history at our resort here. And the horseback rides, I was looking at those. You've got them broken up uh, by hourly, but there was also a sunset ride that this time of year would be perfect weather-wise. Yes, definitely. We actually, we have the sunset ride and we also have a sunrise ride. So if you are okay with getting up early, it's nice outside and the view is so good watching the sun come up and like light up the Catalina mountain range right by us. So either one of those, the sunset or the sunrise, can't go wrong during summer months with that. That is the home of our Arizona staycation here in this month of May. It was actually supposed to be this weekend, but with Mother's Day last weekend and their graduation this weekend, our staycation winter will be staying there next weekend. What room do you have them set up in? Um, we've actually got them set up in one of our Catalina rooms, which are kind of a new addition to our resort. They were built in um, 2016, so they're really gorgeous rooms. Um, the owners did a really great job um, when they built them. They kept all of that old-school architecture um, that we have going on since our resort was built in the 1920s, but they've got all the modern-day amenities and luxuries that you would expect at a really nice resort. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. They've got great views of the mountains, 
or um, the downtown city lights of Tucson. So you really can't go wrong in one of those rooms. Just depends on which side of the building you pick, the mountain view or the nightscape view. Right. Yep. Kind of up to you um, what your preference is, but both views are good, I can personally tell you. I'm scrolling through the pictures on y'all's website. This, uh, Where is it located? It, it's got some beautiful views. Yeah, we're, um, we're kind of right in the heart of Catalina Foothills. So it's not quite as north as Oro Valley in Tucson, and we're not quite as south as downtown. We're kind of right centrally located. So the cool thing about us is that we're kind of like tucked away at the base of the mountain, so you feel like you get away from it all. But if you do want to get out and do some of that downtown bar hopping or nightlife, you're really not that far from anywhere. And being somebody that grew up in Tucson, what's it like working there now? Was it is it any big deal, or was it like, wow, yeah, this place has been you know, the, talked about for so long, and now I'm part of it? Yeah, it's actually very cool to be a part of it. I mean, I've heard about it forever. It's kind of just one of those staples of Tucson. Um, when I hear Hacienda del Sol, I definitely think Tucson. We've been here so long. Um, our current owners right now have owned the property since the 1990s. So, I mean, we're kind of like a close-knit family here. Everyone knows everyone, and it's just kind of a big part of Tucson. And a great place to visit if you're looking for a getaway, some place to go do a little R&R for a couple of days, get in touch with nature, or their hiking, their botanical gardens, their horseback rides. They've got spas, jacuzzis, as she mentioned, uh, the happy hour every day, sunrise rise. I did not see that one on the website, but that's one I'd be a lot more likely to make as a sunrise. We are early birds. We're not. Yeah. Not everybody's an early bird, but if you can, if you are, I would definitely, definitely recommend that. You can sign up for your Arizona staycation at rosieonthehouse.com slash travelaz. Our winner for next month is going to the Nautical Beachfront Property and Resort, and you can enter now to win a Payson staycation as the summer heat hits Arizona in July. We'll send you up to the mountains of Payson, just 90 minutes north of Phoenix, for a cool staycation in the pines that's rosieonthehouse.com slash travel az it's the rosie on the house sanderson ford arizona staycation